So we're in a series titled Against the Tide, and we are in chapter three. If you weren't here, I just want to give you a quick review, because I feel like it would be unfair of me just to pick up in the middle of a book and assume that you know where we're at. But basically, Paul writes this letter. God uses Paul to write a letter to uh, a small church plant, and they are under attack by the philosophies of this world. Legalism, asceticism, which really just means minimalist, like trying to find your own glory and how much you discipline yourself. And so there's all these different philosophies, and we've already talked about that. Check it out on YouTube. And so Paul sets the stage real quick in chapter one that Jesus is supreme. He's the best of the best. You cannot have your best life without the best of the best, which is the king, kings, or lords. You just can't have it. You can't have your dreams without the one who gives dreams. You can't have the joy without the one who gives joy. You can't have peace without the one who gives peace. Paul says he's supreme. And if you're missing out on life, the thing you're missing out on most is Jesus if he isn't the center of your life. Chapter two, he goes on to say, hey, Jesus is sufficient. He's more than enough for the whole journey. You don't need to add anything else. You don't need to add religion. You don't need to add your own uh, preferences. Jesus is enough for the journey. So the first two is about the person of Jesus. The last two chapters of Colossians, uh, Colossians is simply this, the principles of Jesus. And so basically, Paul will go into chapter three, we're gonna pick up. He's gonna say, okay, so if Jesus is supreme in your life and he's sufficient in your life, this should affect your whole life. You should have a whole new life with a new bar, a new standard, a new way you love, a new way you receive love, a new way that you pray, a new way that you dream. You should have a new peace. There should be something different about you. And so really what he does in chapter three, and I'm gonna use a big word, I'm only gonna use it in the beginning. If you love big words, um, I'm gonna use it in the beginning. If you like a lot of them, go home and read a dictionary, okay? Um, but uh, I like big words. But uh, chapter three is just sanctification. And really what that means, it's vivification and mortification. It's the renewing of the mind. You'll see this throughout scripture. That when you get saved, you realize, man, like I just had a broken mindset. I just, I just thought so terribly about things and myself. And, and that's not the way Jesus thinks. And so throughout scripture, you'll see renew your mind, renew your mind. That's vivification, renew the mind. Another part of sanctification is mortification. The things like your old nature, the flesh, like just anger and selfishness and lust and greed. Get rid of those things. Throw off your old clothes and put on some new gear is basically what we're going to talk about today. That's what Paul unpacks in Colossians 3. Does this make sense? Yes? All right, let's read real quick. I uh, had to do a little bit of teaching. I hope that's okay. Uh, Colossians 3.1 says this, Since you have been raised to new life. Everybody say new. Yeah. Say it with passion. New. Yeah. The title of my message is newness. Newness. Is that what we decided, right, Caleb? Newness? Yeah, I like it. Uh, newness. Turn to your neighbor and say newness. I didn't even know that was a real word. I had to ask Caleb, is that a real word? He's like, yes, it's a real word. Raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. So now that you have this newness, you should have a new reality, a new bar in your life. Sometimes I regret walking into Dino's Pizza in Burbank, California. I regret it. Hey, Burbank, what up? Shout out. Um, Burbank, California has the greatest pizza that's ever hit the planet, and it's called Dino's Pizza. The people who work there, they yell at you, they're rude to you, they don't even talk to you. It's the worst service, but the pizza's so good, I keep coming back. They could punch me in the face, and I'd be like, thank you, give me my pizza. That's how good the pizza is. So then I leave LA and I come to the Bay Area, and for seven years, I've been searching for pizza that is as good as Dino's. It's ruined me. I'll eat pizza, I'm like, it's good, but it's not great. I'll go somewhere else, but it's good, it's okay. And before Dino's, I used to think Papa John's was good. What? What? Papa John's was my bar. 
And then I encountered Dino's and Papa John's became very sinful, you know what I'm saying? And what, what, what Paul's saying, and I hope you understand what I'm trying to communicate is, before you meet Jesus, the trash of this world is actually what you think will satisfy you. The trashy relationships, the trashy culture, the trashy ideology, trashy philosophy, this is all you know. But then you get to know this new promise, this gospel message, this new relationship that is the creme de la creme de la creme. And it should change your appetite for life. You should have a new reality when you walk into a room, when you walk into a new season. You're not settling for trash anymore. You're saying, no, I know what the real thing is. And my reality is heaven. It is not the trash of this world. You guys want to talk about that today? I want to. I want to. All right, we you bow your heads? Lord, I thank you for what you're doing at Mission Church. And Oh, you're the God of newness. You make all things new. You died on a cross and you tasted death so we could taste life. Oh, you, you were stripped naked on a cross so we could be clothed in righteousness. You had a crown of thorns jabbed into your skull so we could actually have a crown on our head that would make us royalty. You were rejected by mankind, betrayed by your friends so we could be accepted and loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, may we understand the promise on our life. May we understand what we were saved from. May we understand the gift that is ahead of us, the gift that is in front of us, the gift that lives in us. Oh, may my words fall to the floor. May your words soar. We love you, Jesus. And everybody said? I don't know about you, but I love new things. I love new things. You'll see this throughout your life, even when you're younger. I still remember when I was a kid, we were at a pizza place, um, Pietro's Pizza. It was a place where you could play video games, and you'd go to the quarter machines, and you get little toys. My brother and sister brought the Game Boy in. Does anyone remember Game Boy? Still legit, okay? Anyways, so they had a Game Boy, and the Game Boy's worth hundreds of dollars. We're not rich. My parents saved for like years, basically, to buy this for us. And so we have a Game Boy, and my brother and sister are fighting over an eraser they got out of the quarter machine. An eraser. And I still remember that to this day because it freaked me out. They're like fighting over it. Here's the only reason why they're fighting over the eraser. The Game Boy was older. They already played the oh, Game Boy. It's been around for a while. But this eraser is brand new. It's amazing how we love new stuff. Think about it. When you go on a, a date, what's one of the first things you're thinking about? When I'm going to date, I'm about to go get a new shirt. Okay, some new shoes, maybe some new jeans where the zipper don't fall down. You know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, yeah, if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. If not, inside joke. Um, anyways. So when you go on a date, I remember being a young adult pastor, a young adult be like, oh, I'm going on a date, I'm about to go get a new shirt. Tyler would be like, you don't need a new shirt. You need a new attitude, man. You ain't going to get no girl with that kind of attitude. Because I knew him. I knew his spirit. He was, he was a jerk. He was kind of arrogant. And he was wondering why he could never get a girl. And so he could get as many new shirts as he wanted, but it wasn't going to change the problem, actually, what was going on. You look at marriages. Kids are fighting. You're like, oh, kids are fighting. We should get a new car. That, or you could just raise them and discipline them. Just an idea. Or marriage is in shambles, so you get your wife a, a new car. And you think that the new car or the new present or the new toy will change what's going on, but no, Jesus actually shows that the only way that you can be changed is if you let the newness of God change you from the inside out. This is what is being established in Colossians 3, that you have a new life that should change the way you process, that change the way you live. And so now that you have this new life, here's the problem. You still live in this world that has all these different ways of life, I remember saying yes to Jesus and going back to my basketball team and the plans they had for Friday night was to go party where they rented a bunch of hotel rooms and they were going to get drunk and that's the idea they had. I remember going, how in the world am I going to live for Jesus when this is where I live? And what Paul will show in Colossians 3 is that it is possible to have heaven on earth today. 
It's a theological term of the kingdom of God now, but not yet. The kingdom of God can reign today. Peace can reign today. Love can reign today. And so here's one of the first things that Paul teaches us uh, in this newness, is that with this new life, you need to know where to set your mind. How important is it to talk about the mind in the Bible? I just want to read you a few verses. In 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 13, 11, it says, When I was a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I grew up, my mindset changed. Have you ever met a 50-year-old that still acts like a 10-year-old? I have. Literally, they come in and they get angry or they'll be at a restaurant and they literally like throw a fit like they're like a five-year-old in a little high stroller. I'm like, wow, you're 50, but you're, you're acting like my little sister. This is crazy. Because they still have not changed their mindset. They still think like a child and reason like a child. Have you ever fought with your spouse and you're like, oh my gosh, you're acting like you're 10 years old right now. Yes? Hmm? Don't raise your hand and point at your spouse, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, dang, Lord, you need to renew that mind. You know what I'm saying? Uh, let's keep going. It says this in Romans 12, 12. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How about Ephesians 4? What does it say about your mind in Ephesians 4? Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Stop. We have a term in our culture for people how much they want new stuff. There is a term. It's called the midlife crisis. And here's what a midlife crisis looks like. I'm going to give you a visual picture. You basically get uh, come into this world, you get sold a bill of goods, and you say, get all these things, and your life will be everything you want. Get the new car, get the new uh, spouse, get the new job, get the new position, get the new bank account. And once you have that, then you're going to be satisfied. So it looks like this midlife crisis used to be 40. Now, like, kids in college are having midlife crises. Um, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, 25-year-olds are like, oh, my gosh, is this all there is in the world? You're 25! Some people have it at 50, 60. It's, it doesn't matter. It's not an age thing. It's, 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 it's in a moment thing in your life when you start to look like, am I actually living for waste? Is every, all this for naught? And so what it looks like is, I'm 37. I'm, I'm getting to 40, by the way. It's, it's a good feeling. I'm, oh, actually, I'm going to be 37 July. Excuse me. But what it looks like is for 40 years, and I'll use that term because I'm almost 40, it would be like climbing a mountain. And it's all this hard work, and it's a struggle. And just to be honest, life is going to be hard no matter what. Like, I don't want to sell you Bill Goods when you say, yes, Jesus, life is easy. It's just that we go through hard things differently, that, that we have a different strength that we go through it, that, that, that when, when somebody betrays us, we actually have this grace called forgiveness on our life that, that doesn't ruin our life. It just is something that shapes our life. So when you're walking up this mountain of the world, you get to be 40 and you get to the top and you think on the other end is going to be this waterfall and oasis and all these people that are like, you're here. We're so glad you found us. We're going to party. Hugs. Hey, you know, if you love like, um, you know, coffee, we've got our favorite coffee, Stumptown Blue Bottle. You're welcome. You know, whatever it is. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, cannonball in. You got, but what happens is you get over the hill and you just see the same old stuff, just the same old job. The same old people around you, they don't treat you very well. They don't appreciate everything that you do for everybody. You don't get enough thank yous from these people. You ever feel that way? You're like, man, I'm going to do so. Can I get a thank you once in a while? You ever feel that way with the kids or the spouse or the friends? So you get over the, I'm, I'm not saying my wife doesn't say thank you, by the way. Like, whoa, premarital counseling. Anyways, so you get over the hill. It's the same people, same job, same debt, same bank account, and you got the same old clothes. And so people have a midlife crisis. And they freak out. So they want to go get a new life. They get the, rid of the people. They get rid of a job. And say, maybe I just need a new job. They get rid of all these things thinking, this is what's going to satisfy my soul. But here's what Paul says, how you actually, this is when it gets real good in your life. It's not when you try to climb the mountain. Here's what's so great. The Bible says that 
Jesus actually was the one that came down to us, that he was Mount Zion, that the mountain came to you, that you're not even supposed to climb the mountain. In, in, in the religious ways, you used to always have to climb a mountain to get to this holy moment, this epic moment, Mount Sinai, or even when they're on the well, they'd be like, well, we worship on this mountain and that mountain. But what's so cool is Jesus says, no, you don't climb the mountain now. I'm the mountain. I came to you. I brought all this world to you. So now it's not actually what you climb. It's actually where you set your life. It's where you surrender your life. It's where you decide to plant your life. So here's how he says it. He says this in Colossians 3. First part of the renewing of your mind, how he teaches us. He goes, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Stop. Set your mind on things above. What he's saying is, we're not going to live culture up. Culture is not going to dictate the way we process and live. We're actually going to actually have the kingdom shape our culture. So kingdom down, not culture up. Here's another way to say it. Uh, me and Rachel have a place where we set our keys. It's very important to have a place where you set your keys. Can we agree with this? Everybody want to raise it? Yeah, maybe. Okay, okay. Hey, I'm getting more people to raise their hand. By the end of this service, everybody's like, yep, okay. Um, I'm going to get you. Okay, so anyways. So uh, it's very important. If we don't set our keys somewhere, a lot of the time, we'll wake up in the morning and be like, Rachel, the keys aren't in the little box. Where are the keys at? She's like, oh, they might be in my purse. You know, so I run around like, they're not in your purse. And so we're losing time. And finally, I find them, and they're just on the kitchen table. If I would just wouldn't like this, I would have found them. But they weren't set in the right spot. And when you don't set the keys in the right spot, they get lost. But what happens if you don't set your mind? What happens if you don't set your heart? What if you don't set your life in the right spot? You start to lose your mind, you start to lose relationships, you start to lose purpose, you start to lose joy. When your mind isn't set in heaven, you start to lose all the things that you desire most. Think, think about this. If you were given $100,000, would you set that $100,000 on your front porch and just go to sleep and wake up the next day and hope it's there? No! It's something, $100,000, if you had $100,000, I would get a safe, I would put it in this safe, I might tell a couple people my code, maybe Rachel, she likes to shop, so maybe I wouldn't tell her, just keeping it real, um, she's like, what's the code, I forgot, um, anyways, um, like we came home yesterday, and there's a big old box in front of the door, I was like, what'd you get, she's like, oh, Julia armoire, I was like, uh, armoire, this big old thing, she's like, oh, did I have to ask for permission, no, you didn't, girl, um, but for the safe, you will have to ask for permission, what, okay, so anyways, uh, let's keep going. So, <laughs> $100,000. You would take the 100000 and you would either set it in a bank where you know it's going to be guarded, or you would set it in a safe where you know it would be safe. It's $100,000. You lose it tomorrow, you're still going to have your health. Now, think about this. Your life, your mind, your heart, the most priceless thing that you can really, like, that will affect everybody. Where are you going to set it? Where, where, where are you going to, where, where, what are you going to think about all day? What are, you, what are you going to process? Because a lot of times, you know where people set their minds? They set it in a wound. Somebody hurt their feelings, and they just set their thoughts there all the time. And it just steals from their joy, steals from their today. So they set their mind in the past, so they never get to enjoy the present. Have you, have you ever met somebody like that? They literally set their mind in all the things that happened, and so they're in their day, and they're living their day, and they can't even enjoy today. God has gifts today, joy for today, peace for today, promise for today, but their mind's set over here instead of the realities of heaven. Oh, you're missing out if you're setting your mind in the past instead of in heaven. Have you ever met anybody who sets their mind in the future? Oh, am I going to be able to pay the bills? Or are the kids going to be able to go to this school? Is this going to happen? Oh my gosh, I just coughed. Am I going to die? I'm hypochondriac. I'm a little bit hypochondriac, just to be honest. So I'm talking about myself here. Um, so basically, you set your mind in the future. So, so you're thinking about everything in the future, and your mind's set there instead of actually with the Lord, and so you don't even enjoy today. Life's a journey. 
And if you don't set your mind in heaven, you are going to hate life. It's going to be a big old roller coaster. I'm going to give you three points today. They're going to be not super quick because I do preach long. Um, I just want to stop lying at church to you. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I looked on YouTube. But you know what's great, though? Side note, digress. Uh, the most listened to message are my two-hour messages. So I think you want me preaching hours, what you're telling me. Uh, that's same 25 people. Same 25. That's okay. Let's go. I'm not going to preach an hour today. If it's your first time, relax. 59 minutes. Let's go. So if your life is like a journey, Paul is going to go throughout Colossians 3, and he's going to prepare you for this new journey with your new life. What I love about God is he sets his kids up to win. He sets his sons and daughters up to win. And so when you go through hard times, Jesus is so good, he, he makes sure that those hard times will not stop you from getting to where he wants you to be. Those terrible valleys, he doesn't allow those to stop you from who you're supposed to actually become. That's how good our God is. And so on this new journey and on this new life, I just let you know that God's into fashion. Everybody say Fashion. I am not into fashion, okay? Uh, but I want to be better at my fashion. I believe in coziness, and I believe in matching, a.k.a. white shoes and a white shirt all the time. Okay, anyways, um, thank you. Kayla said I'm killing it. That's a big deal. Um, he is my mentor in fashion. Let's go, okay. Uh, Colossians 3.12, and I love this, what he says to us. So he's, he's going to clothe us for the journey. So in your new life, he wants to clothe you for the journey. Let's just hear what he says. Since God chose you to be holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You ever put something on and everybody's like, that looks terrible on you? You know what I'm talking about? Or the wife goes, does this make me look ugly? Always the answer is no. Right away, don't even think about it. Don't even look. Just say no, okay? You know what looks good on you? Kindness, love, mercy. It's the best fashion. What, what Paul is saying for every day of your life, when you wake up in the morning from now on, you need to set your, this is a daily thing. This isn't just a one-time thing. It's, you get up, Lord, may my mind be on the things of heaven today. May I think about the goodness you have towards me. May I think about your promises. May I think about what you've done in my life. May I, may I be thankful for the restoration. May I be thankful that you called me out of the grave. There's a picture in the New Testament. Lazarus, he's dead in the grave. And Jesus says to Lazarus, come forth, dead man. That all of us were Lazarus at one time. We were dead in our sins. He raised us to new life. But you know what the scripture said when Lazarus was brought to new life? He stinketh. His old grave clothes stinketh. They're like, get those stinketh clothes off of him. Get him some new gear. Get him some new clothes. Because your old selfishness, it stinketh. Your old anger, it stinketh. Your lust, it stinketh. The things that you used in your old life when you got saved, don't bring them into your new life. Your criticalness, it stinketh. Your religious mindset, it stinketh. God wants you to put on new clothes. Oh, tenderness, mercy, grace. You put those things on, it looks real good on you. It's the best outfit you could ever wear. He doesn't stop there, though. He keeps on adding more clothes. Here we go. So it goes on to give us uh, some instructions. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with, everybody say love. Don't be wrong. Make sure, it's, it's kind of like, if I would have shown, I got illustrations for days today, buckle up. Um, I sleep in pajamas, okay? A certain type of pajamas, whatever. I have pajamas, aka kind of a t-shirt thing. It's what I do, okay? I don't want to describe my pajamas to you. That would be weird. But can you imagine if I would have came to church in my pajamas? You would have said, 
you probably should have changed before you came. You probably should have put on some new clothes before you came to church. Let's keep going. Righteousness. When we hear the word righteousness in the New Testament, it is not a legalistic religious term. Righteousness is a relational term. It means right standing with somebody. So when you show up with the right clothes, it is a righteous thing to do. When my wife and I got married, she wore this beautiful, oh, a beautiful, what do they call it, gown, bridal gown, dress? Dress, thank you. Gown, gown, dress, clothes. Um, she wore this beautiful dress. And I showed up in a suit. I, I tried on seven different suits because it was my wedding. And I wanted to make sure I put on the right one. And I thought about it. And I showed up, and I was righteous that day because I was wearing the right thing, and I was in right standing that day. And what Paul is saying to the church, when you leave the house, at the wedding, my wife and I, seven years ago, if I would have been wearing pajamas, and you would have been walked in the room, and somebody said, hey, find the groom. Find the groom in the wedding. I would have been your last pick. Can we agree with this? There's like no way the groom's wearing pajamas, and the beautiful bride, Rachel, is wearing that beautiful dress. When you go to work, when you're around your friends, let's play the game. Find the Christian. And are you still wearing your old, gross, angry clothes, selfish clothes? And you'd be the last one people would pick because you're still wearing your old garments instead of putting on your new digs? And you're not dressed in righteousness, which is love and mercy and kindness? This, this, is, this is what Paul's unpacking. Every day, when you wake up, you got to live life on purpose or let just respond to all the world has for you and let the world dress you with anger and angst and worry and all these things, or you can let the Word of God dress you with the best things you could ever wear. Above all, dress yourself with what? Love. Come on. So he goes on to say, above all, close yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Man, you want unity? Man, wear some love today. You want unity in marriage? Put on, love. Put on love for your spouse. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Everybody say, always be thankful. Thankfulness looks good on you, by the way. Looks really good on people. Thankfulness is a very attractive quality. It's one of the best uh, qualities you can have for a boss with an employee. It's one of the best qualities you can have for a spouse when your spouse is thankful. It's one of the best qualities as a kid to a parent. It's one of the best qualities as a son and a daughter to the living God. Always be thankful. You read the Bible and you actually have sanctification and you start seeing it that way in your eyes. I want you to catch this real quick. You'll start to see that God is always trying to sanctify us because he knows, I'll put it this way, he loves you so much that he knows exactly who you could become and he's your biggest fan and he's your God and your king, your father. He wants you to become everything he created you to be. But to go through that process, it is a journey of labor in the sense that you got to go through some valleys that you maybe don't want to go through, and you're going to go through tests that maybe you don't want to go through, because God does test. In Ephesians 14, 15, 16, we're going to look at it in just a second. Uh, when you go through this journey of life, it literally says the Lord's going to test Israel. So let's look at a sanctification thing. I, I wanted to actually preach a little bit this morning, too, some, some great Bible stories that are true history that you see the King of Kings sanctify his people at least trying to, in the response. We're going to learn from the failures of Israel. So here's what happens if you don't clothe yourself for the journey. Israel goes through the Red Sea. What an amazing moment. If you don't know, this is an exodus. But Israel goes through the Red Sea. Moses leads them. And then the Red Sea uh, collapses on Egypt, their enemy. And it kind of is a picture of salvation. Because uh, sanctification can't happen without justification. Justification is God saving you. You didn't save yourself. Him doing something that you could never do. Like splitting a Red Sea. You walking from death to life. So they walk to a new life. 
Here's the problem with the Israelites. They come out of this new, uh, come out of this old life of bondage, and now they have this new freedom. They have this new hope. They have this new everything. But the problem is they still got their old mindset. They got their old clothes that they like to wear. They got their old appetites that they used to have. And so, oh, it's, it's devastating. But basically, a month and a half later, they're on their journey, and they start murmuring about the food and the water situation and the journey they're on. And if you read the story, it's, if you just read it in one, one sitting, you'll find that murmurs will always murmur. If they murmur to you, they're going to murmur about you. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm, okay. So they murmured about Pharaoh. They were grumbling about Pharaoh to God. Oh, the, the, what he does to our life. It's, oh, it's terrible. What are they, oh, help save us. Oh, murmur, grumble. Oh, cry out. All these things. So God saves them. And then guess what they do? God sends them this thing called manna. It's just a fancy word for like bread of heaven. It's a little like, it's like honey bread. I'm not sure. I've never had it. But it's basically God gives them food from heaven, manna, and they're complaining about it. They start murmuring about the food. They're like, in Egypt, we used to be able to sit around pots of meat and eat all these great food, and now we're eating this manna. Moses, what have you done? We, we should have just died in Egypt. And I'm going, man, what kind of person murmurs like this after they just saw the Red Sea split a few weeks ago? Red Sea split, they write a new worship song. Woo! God killed Egypt! Woo! Like all these kind of things they, they worship. A few weeks later, what is this? We left Egypt for this? I am so upset right now. And they start grumbling, and God goes, not grumbling about you, Moses, they're grumbling about me. They're murmuring about me. Catch this real quick. God took his kids out of Egypt, and he was taken to the promised land. But before the promised land, here's the deal, and I'll just be honest, I grew up in a family of murmurs. Like, really poor. Uh, we would go to any restaurant, and I just thought we murmured because we went to like bad restaurants. We went to places called like Ma's Place, you know what I'm saying? Like, like a little cafe, they're like, here's your eggs, you know, you're like, thank you. Um, we went to McDonald's fast food, but, but that's, and so my parents would always be like, oh, my eggs are cold, oh, this. But, I mean, my whole family just murmurs. And then I married a worship pastor. And I'm not talking just Rachel leads worship on Sunday. My wife just loves life. She celebrates she, she just like, she has such a great attitude towards things. So we'd go out to dinner and be a nice restaurant. And I'd be like, oh, my filet, it's a little undercooked. And she'd be like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest meal I've ever had. You know, it was like she wanted to break out and dance and song, you know, like, oh, praise the name who made the steak. You know, like, like, like one of those things. I'd be like, wow, we are different. You know what I'm saying? Because my wife did not grow up with murmurs. She grew up to be thankful Everybody say again, always be thankful. Say thankful. I, I was raised on how to murmur, not how to be thankful. That when you bring it to me, you never met my standard with people and with everything else. And so, so Jesus takes the Israelites out and he wants to take them from murmurers to worshipers. Because if he gives, here's what happened. I'll just be honest. Uh, my parents come here. They're going to be uh, maybe not too happy I share this story, but I'm going to do it anyways. Okay. Um, I'll ask for permission afterwards. So anyways, all good. I uh, love my parents. But we take them to a five-star restaurant, my wife and I. I like, I like, all right, we're going we're gonna to spoil my parents. It's my mom's birthday. Let's take them to a five-star restaurant. Let's send my mom even to a spa. This is going to be amazing. Five-star restaurant. Oh, my, this, is, this is terrible. Oh, this, I was like, oh, my goodness. And I saw it. If you can never learn how to enjoy the one-star restaurant, you'll never enjoy the five-star restaurant. 
if you can never learn how to enjoy the manna from God, you'll never enjoy the promise from God. Whatever you have in your lap today, if you're not enjoying it, you're not content, you'll never enjoy anything. You think enjoyment is actually a thing? No, enjoyment's the spirit. It's, it's, it's from God. I, you you got to look at this picture real quick. The Israelites are so upset. They're on the journey. And I'll just I'll start from this side. I'll mix it up. Um, you, check this out. They're on a walk. Do you know what I wish more than anything? I wish I could choose who hurt me in my life. I wish I could choose my journey. But I didn't get to choose that one of my biggest wounds would come from my dad. And so when you live your life and you're on this journey, the Israelites are mad because they didn't get to pick the route and they didn't get to pick the struggle. But God gives you the clothes for the route and for the struggle. And so what happens in life is that you'll go on this journey and you'll be wounded by somebody that you never thought you'd be wounded by. David, what he says in a psalm, if it would have been my enemy, I would have been able to process it easy, but it was somebody I worshipped with. You betrayed me. I think all of us in this room, I think if we could pick, oh, I wish that person would have been the one that wounded me. We don't get to pick those things. And God doesn't make those things happen, but he allows things to happen because we have this thing called free will. There's these things called tests. There's these things called sin. That literally, why do bad things happen? Because we're in a sinful world. We're not in heaven yet. But here's what happens. Heaven can actually reign through your life. That when that sin comes to you and you're wearing the right clothes, and you're on the journey, instead of complaining about it, always be thankful. Thank you, God, that you're shaping me by my bad boss. I don't know about you, but if you have a commute, and you're in a car, and you have traffic, instead of complaining about the commute and the, the traffic, say, God, thank you that I have a car to be in traffic with. Thank you that I have a job that I'm driving to. Amen. If you can't be thankful for the job, you're not going to be happy to show up, and you're not going to be happy to come home. Oh, if you've got a mortgage, thank God that you actually have a house to live in. Amen. I had a pastor t tell me that when things get bad, you should do a thankful jar. Every day you should have a jar in your house, and you should write one thing you're thankful for, and you should drop it in the jar, and after the 30 days you should read it. You've got to understand, everything that you do spiritually, it's like a muscle. You've got to build it. It's, 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 it's vivification, the renewing of the mind. It's like when I moved here. When I first moved here, I tried to drive home, and I had to use MapQuest every day. Every day I was like, okay, uh, take a left on this road, take a, oh, I missed my house, oh my goodness. It's, like, it's where I live, but I didn't even know how to get home because my mind did not know how to get there yet. And now I drive home like this. And I'll, pu I'll pull in the parking lot, I'm like, how did I get here? <laughs> like, when did I drive home? Like, here's what happened. My mind had been renewed that I know the route exactly how to get there now. And the renewing of the mind is what happens is you literally say, how did I get here? How did I become so joyful? How to become so free? Because you allowed God to clothe you and you allowed God to lead you. Let's become worshipers and not murmurers. Let's go on to the next point. Second one, uh, after you get new clothes for the journey, you're going to get new wealth. New wealth. And everybody said amen. amen. Come on now, say amen. amen. A new bank account. How's that, okay? Uh, Colossians 3, 16 says this. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Everybody say richness. That Greek word actually represents like being like a billionaire. It means being like a baller, basically, okay? And so what an interesting word that God would have Paul use to uh, communicate the richness of Christ in our lives. Do you guys remember the show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah? Yeah? A little bit? 
Okay, so we would watch it as a family. Back in the day, it was big time when we were, like, it was like prime time. Like, who wants to be a millionaire? You know, and so, you know, we'd watch it and, and we'd try to play and answer the questions. And we'd probably usually lose around the 25,000 range, but whatever. Um, but we'd always ask this question a lot of time after the show. Hey, Dad, what would you do if, you're, if you won? I would fly our whole family to England, Tyler. That was always his one if he won a million dollars or the lottery. And I remember asking them, asking me, what would you do with a million dollars? And I'd be like, I would buy a car, a house, a boat. I didn't know, like in the Bay Area, you'd be like, I'd buy a condo <laughs> and a sandwich. <laughs> That's about it. You know what I'm saying? Can you imagine the play who wants to be a millionaire in the Bay Area? They're like, get out of here. You know? <laughs> who wants to be a hundred dollar? Okay. Anyways, so, so you would dream this way because there is a desire. I, I think it's... Let's be honest, all of us desire to be rich. All of us desire to be rich. Do you know that a worldly mind is a weary mind? Oh, it's weary. If you decide to set your mind in the world, what happens is, is that you don't get to enjoy anything. You don't enjoy the house that you bought because your mind is weary. Do you know the definition of weariness is pleasure exhausted? What? It means that you can have everything, but if your soul is weary, if your soul isn't rich, you can't enjoy the pool that you installed, the house that you live in, the car that you drive, the spouse that you married, the kids that you birthed. You can't enjoy any of it. There's no richness because you placed your mind in the world. You're now your mind is weary. It's like when you place your life in the world, it's like get on a treadmill and it's the wrong pace for your life. And you keep sprinting and sprinting. And you're so tired that when you even just get off from the world and you come home, you're just so tired you can't enjoy anything. You're, you're broke. Well, a pastor said it this way, and I thought it was a phenomenal way to say it. Some people are so poor, all they have is money. Oh, some people are so poor, all they got is money. Your wealth is not your bank account in this world. It's when God starts to fill you up daily with new joy. So when you go to your job, you actually enjoy your job. When you go around your, your, your friends, you enjoy your friends, you enjoy your spouse, you enjoy your, the, the, the gifts that he gave you. It's okay to enjoy your house. It's not a God, it's not an idol, it's a gift from God. All great things come from God. It's, it's, enjoy your house. But a lot of us have this weary poverty mindset. Acts 3, uh, chapter 3, 1 through 10, it's this amazing part of, of the word, but it's this beggar. And this beggar basically comes every day, puts his hands out, if you read the text, his eyes aren't even up. His head's down, and he basically just asks for whatever he can get that day to survive. And that is a rhythm that he has. This is a poverty mindset. And Jesus does not want his kids to have a poverty mindset. He doesn't want you to have a handout mindset of whatever I could just, what, if I could just get a little bit, if I could just have a little bit of fun today, if I could just have a little bit of joy today. And so he puts his hand out, and he's asking for things, and I love what Peter says to him, he says, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have is, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Oh, what, what a powerful statement right there. I, I want you to catch this quick. I, people with a poverty mindset are exhausting for me. People with a poverty mindset are like pickpockets. They're emotional pickpockets. They're relational pickpockets. Because what they are is they're so broke, and they think that you can actually fill their bank account. So they'll try to meet with people for coffee, and they're like, just give me, give me, give me. You hang out with them for two hours, and they, then you leave them like, oh, I wish they would have hung out with me for three hours. I can't believe they hung out with for two hours. Because they're just like, they, they're never ever satisfied because their poverty mindset, they always have this like, oh my gosh, if I get $100, I've got to hide under the mattress. And they, they literally want more and more because they're always worried about having less and less. So you have a people who come to church, 
And when they come, they come with their hands out. They just want you to give them a nice little message. And they want uh, maybe a, a small group. They're looking for a friend. And they think these are the things that they need to get. This handout, give me this. And if they go to the right church, that gives, fills up their hand for the handout, they'll stay at that church. But Paul says, oh, let me read it to you again. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. We're not supposed to live as hand out. We're supposed to live hands up. It's a totally different thing because when we live hands up, Jesus pours into our life and then we pour our life as a drink offering and we're never actually empty. We're all so full that we're actually looking for people to give. Do you know what it's talking about when it says the richness of Christ? It's talking about the Word of God. It's talking about the Bible. So when you read the Bible and the richness of the Word gets in you, you start sharing encouraging words that you read. You start praying different. You start seeing the way God sees you and you have a whole new identity and so it makes you super rich and you enjoy life completely different. You go from t having your hand out with everybody instead of your hands up to the Lord and when your hands, it, it's a posture thing. <sighs> A quarterback is only as good as its receivers. I could throw you a million-dollar check, but if your hands aren't in the right position and posture to receive it from the Lord, you are getting scraps instead of the real thing. Some people in this room, you have a poverty mindset, and you think that the things of this world can satisfy it. It's not the world. There's not enough people to satisfy your relational brokenness. Jesus can uh, fix it. The answer is always Jesus. There is not enough people in this world, not enough money in this world to get you to your dreams. Jesus is the answer. Over and over again, Jesus is the answer. Is this making sense? I, I, just, I always picture, and I just want to share this with you quick. And if you've been coming to church for the last few months, you maybe have noticed this. I've been teaching worship a little bit. We need to be taught everything. You need to teach your kids how to... Everything, like when your kid's a young kid, you teach them how to, you know, wipe their face. You teach them how to put the, the dishes away. If you never teach your kids anything, they become the, the, basically whatever their default is. And so we come to church and everybody has a default. Laid back, super energetic, critical, somewhat engaged, whatever it is. But in God's house, we know that we're millionaires now in heaven, billionaires. And so that's why we, one of the reasons why we raise our hands. It's, it's just the same. I lift my hands to the ones who gave me my hands. I lift my voice because he gave me my voice. I lift my life because he gave me my life. And I praise him because I know that the promises that he say are true and yes and amen. This is why our hands are up instead of our hands are, hands are up instead of out. Yeah, okay. Um, last uh, point, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to finish with this. So you say yes to this new life and you'll have new clothes. You'll have a new bank account. But last but not least, you'll have a new mission. A new mission. The name of our church is Mission Church, okay? Been pastoring for 15 years, and I've prayed for a lot of people in my life. Do you know a lot of people ask me to pray for their position all the time? Very rarely do I have somebody come up to me and say, will you pray for my mission in life? Because we almost look at God as like a, like a booking agent, could you talk to the Lord for me and make sure he puts me in this position with this kind of thing? Because once he puts me here, then I'm good. God is not a booking agent. So there's this moment, I want to read to you in Colossians 3, it says, put on then, it's Ephesians 3.12, I mean Colossians 3.12, excuse me, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Stop. Three things that you're described as, chosen, holy, beloved. Chosen, holy, beloved. We don't work for our identity. 
We actually work from our identity. This is what Paul's showing. We're totally different from culture. We actually get our identity from God. So we're chosen. That's a big one. Chosen for what? Chosen to be loved and to love. We're, we're holy. What does holy mean? We're set apart. There is an assignment on your life. There's an assignment on my life. There's an assignment. There's a holy assignment. Things that were holy in the temple, they were set apart for certain things. You're set apart for certain things. You could say a mission, if we could use that term. And then beloved. It's a term of affection. God loves you. Like, that's who he is. He's love. He loves you. It's, it's, it's one of these things that we don't use a lot in culture. I don't know what last time somebody told me, chosen, beloved, and holy, but this is what God says about you. That's why you should read your word more. That's, that, that should be in your mind more than what the world tells you you are. Banker, spouse, whatever it is, wounded. No, you're, you're chosen, you're holy, beloved. So Joseph has a dream. And here's sanctification happening again. Joseph comes and he has a dream and he tells his brothers and it's, Everybody bows down to him, basically, is what he says. He has this picture, and they're like, hold on a second. So in your dream, we're bowing down to you. It's like, yeah, great dream, right? And he receives the dream, and he thinks he has a dream about position because he has positional mindset instead of a missional mindset. Because the Great Commission is a mission for the church to say yes to. And so he has a positional mindset. And so, you know, have you ever noticed people who have a positional mindset are threatened by other people who have positional mindsets because they're fighting for the same thing? So they see them as a threat, like, oh, you want the same position I do at work. Oh, you want the same person as I do. Oh, you want the same thing I do. Okay, now we're going to fight. So the brothers also have positional mindset. So they go, whoa, I don't want this guy to have this position. They don't even process mission. Let's throw him in a pit. And I simply wrote this down. I hope this makes sense. It's a quote that I wrote. It's solid, not great, but we'll see. God doesn't give you a mission to get a position. It gives you a position to accomplish the mission. I'm going to say it again because it's a lot of missions and positions. God doesn't give you a mission to get a position. If you're trying to arrive somewhere, you've missed it. In this world, that's, you're not trying, all right, if I could just get this position or this title. Oh, what an immature way to think, that you think position is what you're supposed to desire. It says this, he gives you a position to accomplish the mission. So Joseph's going to have a position. He's going to be the second in charge of all the most, the most powerful country in the world. He's going to get there eventually. But if he gets there with a position mindset, he is not going to care for people. He's not going to serve people well. He's not going to love people well. So guess what God has to do? He has to sanctify Joseph. Joseph goes in a pit. And I believe this is the beginning of his sanctification. You know what's happening in the pit? And some of you feel like you're in a pit right now. You feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel like nobody cares. You feel like you've been betrayed by everybody. You feel like you've been forsaken by people. So you're in this pit. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask Joseph, too. Joseph, what, what was that like? What did, you, what did you learn in the pit? And, I, and as you see the story of Joseph, you can kind of see the nuances of what it leads to. I think Joseph learns that he has to learn how to take care of his life. Steward his life and steward what he even says. Think about it. He's like, if I just wouldn't have told my brothers that, that was so. I, I, you got to think about it. Maybe he's like, man, that was super insensitive. Like, like man, like, I, I made a mistake because I told them, but now I'm in a pit. This is probably a bad way. I should talk to people differently. I should share my dreams differently with people. Maybe that wasn't the right time. Maybe I should have been mourning with those who mourn instead of celebrating why people are mourning. All these things. He's learning how to care and learn how to develop. There, there's this process in the pit. He's learning how to maybe care for his wounds, saying, God, I can't believe my own family would kill me and sell me into slavery. What, what happened? So, so, so there's the pit, sold into slavery. Let's go to Potiphar's house. So he learns how to care for himself. And then the second part of sanctification you see in Joseph's life is, and everybody's sanctification is nuanced to their calling, just so you know. Not everybody's journey is the same, so don't, 
Don't look at somebody else's sanctification and go, well, they went through this. Am I going through the same thing? No, that's not how it works. And then Joseph has to go care for some other guy's stuff. He's got to steward somebody else's stuff. And he stewards it well. And he learns how to care for another man's estate. And he does it so well that he gets elevated because he's so good at caring for another man's stuff. Then he gets sent to prison and he learns how to take care of captives. And this is, I think, the biggest test because have you ever, have you ever said, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do everything you told me to do. And then you serve people and then they forget about you. And then they like just throw you out. Joseph would serve these people and then they would forget him. They'd forget what he did for their life. But he didn't stop. He kept serving. You read the story. He keeps serving people. It's an amazing thing. And so he learns how to care for captives. And then last but not least, God puts him in this position for a mission to save all of Israel. And he learns how to care for a nation. And he learns how to care for people. And his brothers come, and it's a different man who, do you know what? I've, always, I've never seen this, but do you know who falls down in front of who in that story? Joseph falls down in front of his brothers. Because I believe the most powerful posture you could have in front of anybody is when you fall down in front of the Lord, there is, this is the most authority. I believe that if Joseph wouldn't have been sanctified, he never would have fell down, he never would have cried, he never would have had this remorse, he never would have had this empathy for people. He probably would have walked in and been like, yeah, welcome, you're welcome to my digs. Number two in all of Egypt, suckers. Yeah, uh, yeah. You want some food? I'll think about it. Because he just, he, he just would never have been soft. He never would have been softened by, by his own hard nature. But he sees... He weeps and he cries and he becomes a servant. Catch this real quick. Everybody in this world, they're waiting for something. They're waiting for a new president. They're waiting for a new um, government. They're waiting for a new paycheck. They're waiting for a new position. They're waiting for a person. They're waiting for something. But scripture shows us really what they desire. And it's in Romans 8, 19. It's an amazing, powerful verse. It says this. Here's what creation is waiting for. You ready? For all of creation waits in eager expectation. Romans 8, 19. For what? What are they waiting for? An eager expectation. Are they waiting for a new government? Are they waiting for a, a new boom in the stock market? Here's what the Bible says, what everybody's waiting for. For the children of God to be revealed. They are desiring for children of God, sons and daughters, to bring heaven to them, to bring salvation to them. It's an amazing verse in Romans 8. It talks about the future glory of Jesus. All of creation, you know what? Even the earth is talking about like the plants and the animals. They are yearning for God to save us because guess what? God's kids steward things better than anybody else. They steward relationships better. They steward the earth better. They steward the government better. They steward everything better when sons and daughters of God are put in place and say, I say yes to my calling. I say yes to my mind being set on heaven. I say yes to wearing love instead of hate. I say yes to wearing mercy instead of criticalness. I'm going to put on my clothes and what they're yearning for, I'm going to be the answer because it's Jesus. Does this make any sense? A little bit? Oh. Let's say yes to a new journey a new life. Thankfulness looks good on you. Love looks really good on you. Oh, enjoy, enjoy this week. Don't set your mind in the past. Don't set your mind in the future. Enjoy the day. Matthew 6, it says, today, enjoy today. Leave by your heads.